Hello. This is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. And today we're going to be talking about relationships with Mel Schwartz. Mel is a psychotherapist, marriage counselor, author, and podcaster. His most recent book is The Possibility Principle, How Quantum Physics Can Improve the Way You Think, Live, and Love. He's the host of The Possibility Podcast. He's a two-times TEDx speaker. And one of his talks, Breaking Free from Anxiety, has been viewed 500,000 times. He's been a keynote speaker at Yale University and Yale University Medical School. And his 100-plus articles have been read by over 7 million people. Mel practices virtually by Zoom with people globally, and his website is melschwartz.com. Mel, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, Great to be back with you. It's good to be back with you, too, and you're going to be talking and doing a course around cultivating intimate and resilient relationships. So, first of all, who's the course uh, for, what's going to happen, and when's it going to be? Okay. Well, the course is for everyone because we're all in or struggling with or aspiring to greater happiness fulfillment and less conflict in relationships of all sorts. My course is designed toward um, partnerships, what we would call romantic relationships, which may have devolved and no longer feel romantic. But the tools and the insights are to be used for all relationships, family and friends. Um, This will be a Zoom course, four weeks, four evenings, launching on April 5th. And what has motivated me to do this is a host of things, but primarily in my work as a marriage counselor, I see more or less that we're all in the same boat, and that's that we struggle in what's arguably the most important endeavor in life because we receive no schooling. You know, alongside of history and science and English and math, if we were taught emotional intelligence, verbal intimacy, communication skills, it would be a different world. But we wait until we're off the rails because nobody even taught us the rails to begin with. It's absolute lunacy to me. So I can only work with a certain number of couples and individuals, of course, time's limited. I get inquiries to do work, um, but don't have the space or the time. And I thought this is a great way to teach and share and provide the skills and insights that people can use to prosper in their lives. So I'm offering this Zoom course launching on Tuesday, April 5th for four consecutive Tuesday nights. And to anyone listening that says, oh, not free Tuesday nights, everything's archived. You can take the course whenever you choose as often as you like. That's great. 
So let's talk about some of the things you'll be covering in the course. Give us a little bit of the what. Well, the first thing we're going to do is start where I just began. We're going to depersonalize our struggles in our conflicts. They are personal to us, but we tend to blame ourselves or the other person. And we need to move beyond the blame. Um, so we depersonalize it. I will be sharing to begin with what the struggle is about. Um, there's a, there are universal qualities to our struggle in relationship. And um, I'll be explaining what I call the pillars of relationship, which are emotional and verbal intimacy. Emotional intelligence, our awareness of what we're feeling. And most importantly, our ability to not become the negative feeling, but to communicate it. For example, most people, um, when they're feeling angry, act angry. They don't notice the feeling arising they become angry. And of course, when you become angry, all communication fails. In fact, you become the problem. So one of the skills that I teach is the ability to notice what you're feeling and then say, articulate it. You know, when you said that to me, I noticed I started to feel hurt and angry. Let me tell you why. That's an effective communication. It's challenging, but it's effective. But what do we do instead? We get our back up, we get defensive, reactive, hurl accusations at each other. The default to right versus wrong is antithetical to happiness, prospering in a relationship. And when I ask people, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? Everyone says, I'd rather be happy. But there's an instantaneous automatic default to being right. Now, if I need to be right, that means I need to make you wrong. Well, now how's that going to work out? It doesn't. So there are basic premises um, in what I'll be teaching. And one of them is how to effectively communicate what you're feeling, but to enroll the other person so they're listening. We don't want our words to fall on deaf ears, and they don't have to. So there are skills and techniques to communication where you actually enroll the other person to listen to you instead of defend and react. So I'll be going through so many different areas in relationship and ultimately to understand what we call relationship between two people is each person's relationship with himself, their childhood, everything that's influenced them in their lives. And this all spills over and we call it our relationship. But Michael, the problem or an additional struggle in relationships is that people tend to think of each other as my other half. We've heard this expression, my other half. I says so much. If the other person is your other half, that means you're only halfway there. So if you take two people rooted in fear, insecurity, neediness, self-doubt, anger, and they come together in a relationship, how will that work out? So part of my work in relationships is to help each person identify where they need to evolve and grow and look at for their own ability to thrive and for the relationship to prosper as well. The Zoom course will be very interactive and participatory, whereby I'll be sharing new information and teaching for 10, 15 minutes and then take questions and work with people. Live time, so everybody learns from every, everybody else.
Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm excited about this. Yeah, it sounds like a great course. T talk a little bit about, let's go back to the first thing you said, you're going to depersonalize it. What do you mean by depersonalizing relationships? In my book, The Possibility Principle, there is a page or two uh, devoted to this concept in which I teach the reader to be able to rethink this, where you can say to someone else, you know, this is personal to me. Um, imagine saying to your partner, your spouse, your friend, your sibling, saying to them, you know, I'm neat and organized and you're really sloppy. And it's personal to me because I have to look at your mess. But I don't have to personalize it, which means I shouldn't say they are doing it to me. No, they're not doing it to me. It's who they are. Now, what do we do in relationships is we tend to personalize it. They are doing it to me. So there's a sense of victimhood going on, which becomes emotionally insulting and grievous. And it gets all tangled up. But in terms of what I was referring to, the conflict, the struggles, the disappointments, the anguish that we experience in relationships, the tendency is either A, to be blaming the other person, and or faulting yourself. So it is personal, but to depersonalize it means, again, we're illiterate in the art of relationship. Unless you are exceptional enough that you were raised in a perfectly joyful, emotionally intelligent household, and you are the rare exception, we're illiterate. No one taught us how to do this. We wouldn't know how to drive a car if we didn't take driving lessons. We wouldn't know how to do mathematics or read a book if no one taught us. Nobody taught us how to do relationships. You know, in my first book, Michael, which is called The Art of Intimacy, I framed the book this way. I was speaking about marriage at that time, and I said, the fact that half of marriages may end in divorce, not the problem. The greater problem is that the majority of intact relationships, after a while, are far from happy. So the majority of intact relationships after a period of time are far from happy. That is a staggering rate of failure. If marriage were a corporation, it would be bankrupt. We wouldn't tolerate that rate of failure in business, but we do in our lives. Again, not our fault. We never learned what we need to know. When I go to a wedding and listen to two young people um, sharing wedding vows, I think to myself, sadly, 10, 15, 20 years from now, not likely they're going to have these feelings anymore, but it doesn't have to be that way. So that's what I mean by depersonalizing it. Let's stop blaming and faulting. And let's start learning what we need to do, which still doesn't guarantee we're going to thrive, but it certainly increases the odds. Mm. You know, Mel, I often think that uh, when we fall in love and get in a relationship, uh, we find the, perf the person whose neuroses perfectly matches ours. <laughs> and so that can be either a disaster or a healing opportunity. But at the heart of much of that is uh, the, 
personal uh, attachment uh, trauma or uh, familial or collective or ancestral trauma. So how do you deal with trauma, which is of the body, uh, in that when you're speaking about changing the mind? Well, my own way of viewing this, um, I try to see in what I call oneness. I know you and I have talked about this in the past. So for me, Michael, um, I don't make much of a distinction between body and mind, between emotions and thoughts. I see them all on a continuum um, whereby everything impacts everything else. So for trauma, if the trauma was on a physical level or remains on the physical level, that suggests to me the trauma is also emotional, psychological, spiritual. And wherever I can intervene in that trauma, wherever I can interrupt it on any plane, that will inform all other planes. At least that's the belief I operate from. Mm -hmm. But speaking to something else you, you mentioned about how we come together to start with, I have never worked with a couple in which I didn't see that one person's challenge and crisis provoked the other person's opportunity for growth. Yes, yeah. it, it is a beautiful non-rational symmetry, which is, it doesn't necessarily mean you should be together, but you sure can learn. There's an opportunity for learning and growth here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know you're looking at an in oneness, but let's take things apart because you're talking about emotional intelligence. Um, and for me and in, in my work, I distinguish emotions of the mind from emotions in the body. I think they are quite distinct, even though they produce the same, uh, cortisol, adrenaline, and all the secretions that they are, are different. So I'm just wondering how you, uh, uh, get, get people to actually feel the emotions so they can experience them. Because if they're simply of the mind, then uh, I don't, I, I personally don't see that people really get a handle on uh, the suppressed emotions that come from many early situations. So Michael, help illuminate for me what you mean by emotions of the mind. Emotions of the mind being thought. I'm thinking angry thoughts. I'm speaking angrily. Uh, and, and there's a resonant in the body. There's anger in the body. Where's the anger in the body? Okay, so the way I approach that is I look at thought and feeling as both distinct and continuous at the same time. So it's a paradox for me. So... I believe that thought precedes feeling. It's my own personal belief. Now, in my work, what I teach people to now, do let is- Let me just ask yes. you what you mean by feeling though, because there's, there's feeling like a sensation, like I have a felt sense. And then there's- y Yes. And then there's, you sense. ask somebody when they feel, and they often say, I feel really good. 
which is so, not a feeling. So, so for me, feeling and emotion are synonymous. Emotions, okay. feelings, I use them interchangeably. Mm -hmm. So my experience and my belief is that thought comes first, only we may not be aware of the thought. But the moment you have a thought, that thought triggers the accompanying feeling slash emotion. And we have a thought feeling continuum. So what I've learned to do, and I, I speak about this at length in my book, is I try to see my thought as opposed to become my thought. That breaks down the automatic reflex. So if I can say, as I talked before, if I have a thought, I notice I'm beginning to feel angry. It's a feeling, but I notice it. I have a thought and the thought triggers a feeling. And if it's a feeling that is problematic or troubling, a feeling I don't want, and perhaps a traumatic feeling, um, then if I can track it back to the thought and say, oh, well, that was just a thought. I've done this in terms of, if I'm in a particularly good mood or a particularly negative mood, and I'm wondering why, here I'm talking about a, a malaise, a, a deeper than a, an acute feeling. And I, under, I wonder why. And I go back and I track the thought that triggered it. And then I see the thought and I say, oh, okay. So it was just that thought, which enables me to release the feeling. But in your question, I suppose, and I'm looking for your clarification, you're speaking about the occurrence of deeper embedded injurious wounded traumatic feeling of the body well yeah you have both implicit and explicit uh kinds of trauma experiences and and kinds of things that shape the way we relate to each other so mm -hmm. uh, that's obvious with the implicit uh but also the the explicit you know um there's the there's the thought i'm having and if I can bring that out and share it, I, I would say, yeah, if I can share it with my partner, we can have some coherence. We can actually uh, relate to each other. But um, first of all, there has to be uh, the listening for that, uh, the agreement for that. And, um, and for me, I'm always looking to the body. You know, I'm a body person. We, we know that's <laughs> my style. But when I look from, say, a point of view of the narrative, Mel, my story, my identity, right? I, I have an identity. Uh, I have a hand, too, but I'm not my hand. But most people think they are their identity. Uh, yes. or, or at least they don't even think that. They think through that. So that identity creates the circumference of the possibility in which I exist. When you talk about the possibility principle, that's a limit to me, the, the story of me. And then it's oh. a limit in the story of me in relationship to you. So, Michael, I agree with you to a point, with the exception of the word limit, because my personal belief, my life experience, personally and professionally, is more toward limitless than limit. And interestingly, the body, a physical structure which does have limits 
So that would be consistent with what you're saying. Um, but in my work, it is designed to teach people the limitations of their self-identity and narrative to understand why, what were the injuries early in life typically that wounded them. I'll, I, I, let me share an example. Um, there was a woman with whom I was working who had some new career aspirations. And I offered to give her an introduction to a colleague of mine who I thought could help her. So she went to a conference he was speaking at. And after the conference, he was standing amongst other people. And she was waiting on the periphery to meet with him. And he didn't know this or whatever the case may be. And he ended up leaving and she didn't get to speak with him. Her narrative she shared with me. Well, Mel, I guess I just wasn't important enough for him to look for me. That was her narrative, her identity. Now, having worked with her, I understood and shared with her that her childhood experience was that she waited hand and mouth, strange expression, hand and mouth, on her mother. There was a role reversal. She was the parent to her mom. As a young child, she had to tend to all her mother's needs. So she came away with a core belief. I'm not important. That's her narrative. She carried that narrative forward 50 years later and going to meet with my friend. Same narrative. I had her pause and said, interesting story. I said, here's another story. My friend is notoriously absent-minded. I have driven 40 minutes to meet him for lunch and he never showed up. I didn't construct a story that I wasn't important enough. His not showing up is not excusable, but I had a different story because I had a different childhood. So what I'm get, getting at here is I see the identity and our purpose in being here and living is more limitless, not restricted by the physical being but that trauma, wherever it occurred on any level, I believe can be transcended. Of course, we can't transcend it until we're fully aware of it, set an intention toward transcending, and then get the skills and the actual techniques and ability to do it. I'm not proposing it's easy, but the first step is in believing that you can transcend it. So how do you distinguish between the why and the what? You say you, you, you want to find out, you know, why they have this, but isn't it more a finding about what the issue is that, that uh, is coming up? And because uh, the reason never seems to, to me to, to, you know, yeah, now I know why. I know a lot of things that I don't do. I know that drinking coffee is not good for me. But I do it anyway, not all the time, but, you know, I know that. So there's something underneath that that's more addictive. And it seems the same in, in trying to get people to come together and relate is, you know, what's actually happening to be. Well, yeah, what's the purpose? What's the purpose in a relationship other than familial? a parent child here or siblings but in selective relationship meaning friendships romantic partnerships in relationships that are that we select to be and what's the purpose 
I would suggest that the purpose, if we're conscious, is to enhance our lives. Yet very often relationships end up diminishing us because we fall into this trap. My story, their story, we're all imperfect, wounded, hurt. We make up stories, we accentuate stories, we diminish other people's stories. So there we can come to the question of why. Well, why is it? It's a philosophical question. I can speculate, you can speculate as to the why. But my question would be, do you want to do something about it? And if the answer is yes, well, what do you want to do? Do you want to free yourself from conflict, emotional trauma, verbal abuse? Do you want to free yourself from feeling devalued or feeling angry and acting out loud? Do you want to make these changes? And if the answer is a sincere yes, that's where I'm moving in to provide the tools. Because in that example I gave you earlier of that woman, um, she carried a, a limiting constraining belief about herself because of chronic trauma from her childhood, not an acute event, but chronic trauma. Yeah. Now, we all, do, we all do, but most of us actually don't see these, see our beliefs as informed subjectively by our experiences and our pain. We think our beliefs are simply accurate, valid. I'm not important. Look at that term she shared with me. I am not important. An objective statement of fact. So one of the things I do with her is to have her take that word am out. Because I am not important is unchangeable. And say, I don't feel important. I never felt right. important. Okay, now we can work with that. How come you never felt important? Ah, oh, the light goes off. Well, my childhood, my mother, okay. And throughout your life, she's probably chosen relationships that will reinforce her not feeling important. On an unconscious level, we're attracted to that. Now, would you like to feel differently? Yes, of course I would. Well, then we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Now, we're going to have to let go of that old, traumatic-laden belief you carry about yourself. It's neither true or not true. It's valid. But it doesn't serve you anymore. So I, I don't know to what extent I'm answering your question about the what as opposed to the why and those distinctions. But, you know, I, I simply feel that's my calling. Mm -hmm. that's, that's my passion. That's why I'm in this work. Not to reduce and analyze and say that's the problem, but more to shift and say, if we're clear as to what the source is, how do we break free from the trap of old belief and old thought that keeps us stuck in this prison. Right, of course. And then so how do you move from, okay, I see that I have a belief there, then talk about how you would then take them to the next step. And what are the practices and ways that they would bridge that? Because some of these are so deeply ingrained that, uh, and often positive thinking actually works the opposite because if I say uh, I'm valuable, I'm valuable in the background is you're not valuable, you're not valuable, you're trying to cover it up. So how do you get beyond the, that positive thinking kind of 
So, so I do not believe um, in the superficial approach of just think positive expressions. I think right. that's that's silly, and it, it's nonsense. The way I move into it is I I call these core limiting beliefs about ourselves. I call them wave collapses, borrowing metaphorically from a phenomenon in quantum physics, which I know you're familiar with and we've talked about. So when we can identify a limiting core belief about ourselves, firstly, out of a belief, I don't know how many thoughts occur consistent with that belief, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions. So we have a belief and then we have this torrent of thought that conforms to the belief, it emanates from the belief. That's why we get trapped. That's why we struggle with change. So my experience has been that when we can identify the traumatic experience or the core limiting belief and hold it up, then where I roll up my sleeves with the people I work with is in terms of being able to see their thought and see how old thought defends its territory. So yeah. for example, suppose I'm working in therapy with someone for a long period of time and in a moment they have a breakthrough. The sea has parted, they see the light, they have a breakthrough. Now I know that one of two things are going to happen in the next moment. They're either going to say, I am so excited. I can't wait to get started on my new opportunity in life. Or they're going to say, what's wrong with me? Why did it take me so long to get this? Now, that example, why, why did it take me so long? That is old thought defending its territory. Old thought has an energy in its life force. Yeah. It doesn't let you go easily. How do we do it? We see the old thought and we go, shh. We realize that old thought is not our ally. That's an old thought serving an old belief which keeps us stuck. So my work there is to create a muscle memory with people where I provide exercises so that they see thought. If you see your thought, you're the thinker of the thought. You're rising above it. That's where insight and wisdom prevail. So sometimes I'll be talking and I'll say, you know, Michael, while you were talking, I had a thought come up. Let me tell you what my thought is telling me. See what I'm doing there? Thought is becoming participatory. It's not speaking the truth. It's just a thought telling me something. Then I'm free. Then I'm free from my indoctrination to old belief, to old wounds. It is freeing, but you have to develop the muscle memory as to how to do that, which I teach people to do there. You create exercises to do it. So I know you, you are attuned to the body and I'm speaking to the body here in which I'm saying you create a muscle memory. It's actual, it has a physical energy to it. I've actually gotten to the point where I've kind of trained myself to notice a thought, even in the nanosecond before it comes to thought, there's a stirring of energy before something becomes a thing. And in that nanosecond, it gives me so much more opportunity to notice the thought and not have to be the thought. It's freeing. 
Um, going back to quantum physics, the term superposition means a state of absolute possibility or potentiality. So in the nanosecond before my thought, I exist in a state of pure possibility. But if I don't see my thought and keep having the same thought and the same feeling, no possibilities. Now, how you work with that in relationships is a bit different in that in relationships, I'm trying to construct a new way of communicating where we slow down the process. It is not a ping pong match of right and wrong. And we learn to speak in ways which are more focused on dialogue and the art of listening, which you referred to earlier. Because if I'm not listening and I'm preparing my rebuttal, I'm not here, you're not here, we've wasted our time, this is going nowhere. Right. You know, I, I love, you know, I really enjoyed your book, The Possibility Principle, and it was really in alignment with a lot of thought I was having. And something since then I've been thinking about is, uh, you know, we think of the other as out there, like either physically you're over here, I'm over here, or Mel's over there in that frame on that picture. You know, he's sitting there in Long Island. I'm, I'm here in California. And there's this, this uh, very, very visceral separation that's between us. And so, you know, that's one aspect of seeing the world, which is how mostly we see the world. But another way to look at that is, yeah, Mel's over there, but Mel's over there is a particle. But over here in me, he lives as a wave of potentiality. So when I'm talking to Mel, He's actually occurring over here. In fact, the constraints of the possibility of Mel over here is my identity. That that yeah, that's, that's perfectly perfectly said, Michael. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree with that very much. Which is going back to the, the quantum physics aspect. They called it non-locality. I prefer the word entanglement. I wrote an article called "Entangled People, Entangled Issues." In which I said, sometimes in, in a couple session, he will say, it's not my issue, it's my wife's issue. And I'll look at him and say, and you think if it's her issue, it doesn't impact you? No, it's our issue. So the entanglement, moving into that sense of oneness from quantum physics or from spiritual beliefs, I mean, falling in love is entanglement. It's a regrettably temporary state of oneness, isn't it? So in that oneness, we are replete with empathy, compassion. There is little separation between us. Right? Now, what happens over time is once the conquest of the relationship has been achieved, we begin to separate out and we start to compete rather than collaborate. It be, becomes competitive. And then we become two individuals who have differing beliefs and childhoods. And we start to impress upon each other that you're wrong. I see this in parenting philosophies. Ultimately, I have to say to people, listen, you were raised in different households. You had different philosophies. Did you ever talk to each other about this before having children? Did you share your expectations? Did you work on a shared vision? We forget that we're separate individuals with separate histories 
we fall in love, we become entangled as one, and then we retreat from the oneness in a sense of conflict. Okay, understandable, regrettable. Uh, my goal is to create a communication whereby we can step back more into oneness. But as a culture, we do not communicate this way. You know, we, we're taught we have to win. We have to be right. right? That is destructive to new learning and it's destructive to harmony. Is it more important to win or to care how the other person feels? Yeah, it's a high cost. Being right has a high cost. Love, health, happiness, self-expression, all of those things. It's, it's a tragic cost because in the middle of an argument, I may intervene and say, let's not argue facts. Facts belong in the courtroom. Ask each other, do you care how I feel? You say you love me, then you should care how I feel. Right? Let's not retreat to right and wrong. Let's not say, no, it didn't happen three times. It happened two times. It was a Friday, not a Thursday. That's not relevant. Do you care how I feel? So culturally, we argue, we're taught to argue facts rather than express how we feel. We came together to start with because of a joined, harmonized feeling. We were attuned to each other. We resonated. We were in concert with each other. And then the feeling gets disrupted when we become too individual. And I'm not proposing that codependence is healthy. Two autonomous, healthy people can become as one and still maintain their individual identity and well-being. Yeah. Hey, let me tell our listeners, if you just tuned in, I'm talking to my friend Mel Schwartz about cultivating intimate and resilient relationships. And he has a course coming up, a Zoom course uh, starting in April. So uh, you can find more about that at melschwartz.com. And, you know, Mel, uh, we're getting fairly close to the end here, and I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, uh, talk about passion and sex and how, what do you do when the thrill is gone? That's probably something that your listeners are going to want to hear about. So Oscar Wilde, famously wrote, uncertainty is the essence of romance. Well, think about it, it makes sense. The experience of falling in love is bathed in uncertainty. Does she feel about me the way I feel about her moving into sex? Is this pleasing her? Is it pleasing him? What does he think of my body? All the uncertainty. We're not finishing each other's sentences. We're curious. There's a sense of wonderment bathed in uncertainty. Now, again, once we secure the relationship, uncertainty is out the door. We have sex almost by appointment, right? Depending upon your age, what age your kids are, sex is by appointment. Okay, so it's by appointment. We know it's going to be in the bedroom. Probably no one's going to happen. And how's it all going to unfold? Everything is predictable and rote. Not good. Sometimes I, I make an, a suggestion, um, happened recently in a session. When I work with couples, I typically see them individually as well. And uh, this gentleman was complaining about his sex life with his partner, his wife. I said, here's an idea. I want you to take her out to dinner. Are there any inns near you that have restaurants? 
and say, yes. Okay. I want you to reserve a room in advance. And I want you to book dinner. Get a babysitter for the kids. But secretly, you make a plan with the babysitter. She's spending the night. But your wife doesn't know. Now, after dinner, you already have the room key in your pocket. She doesn't know it. And as you start to leave the restaurant, you're heading away from the car. And she says, what are you doing? And you say, it's okay. Just come with me. You put the key in the door. Now we have excitement. We have adventure. It works. It stimulates things. We have to be playful. But the expression passion dies is true, but it's not inherently true. It's like a fire in the fireplace. If you don't stoke the fire, the fire goes out. So I'm not suggesting it's as easy as I'm making it sound. It isn't. But the thrill of uncertainty instinctively happens the first, the second, the third time we experience something. After it becomes repetitive, how do we, how do we keep the flames burning? Um, curiosity wonderment, playfulness. And that requires all aspects of the relationship not fall into predictability. The lack of asking questions based on curiosity has a terrible impact on relationship. You know, saying, what do you think of that? Which we don't often do. How do you feel about that? Why do you feel that way? Did you ever think about it this way? We don't talk to each other that way. Curiosity and wonder are the warehouse for passion and many other things. They keep a relationship alive. Recently, um, toward the end of COVID, hopefully the end of COVID, I met two dear old friends for lunch. Hadn't seen them in a long time. We sit down at a table, outdoor table, mild day. And I thought to myself, I don't want to have the same old conversation. So I started off differently. I said, guys, you think much about death? Does it frighten you? How do you feel about it? Do you ever talk to anyone about it? Wow. We had an entirely new conversation. We learned new things about each other. One of them was uncomfortable. One jumped all into it. It was vibrant. It was life. We worry about the consequences of what we say and do. We need to be concerned about the consequences of what goes unsaid. There's nothing more important to me than an unasked question that we need to ask, coming from curiosity. So these are some of some of the techniques and uh, thoughts I have about keeping a relationship vital. Yeah, it's great. Those are great. You know, you know what Shakespeare said about uh, relationships, Mel? I don't recall. He said it's a grave mental disease. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when you look at that habitual thinking, um, it is, you know, it can get into that place. And, and I love that you bring up the curiosity and wonder and, and uh, well, how can we, I have, um, someone who works for me and no matter what you say if you say how are you it's i'm fine how are you i'm fine and so i'm i have to find different ways 
to actually get anything meaningful out of this person. Uh, so I appreciate that. You know, if I'm sitting in a restaurant and the wait, waiter, wait, waitress says, uh, I guess, wait person says, how are you? I said, well, if you got some time, pull up a chair and we'll talk about it. Because I, I do believe in authenticity of how we communicate. So, Michael, when you say to her, how are you? And she gives you her rote response. You might say to her, no, when I say that, it's not like, hi. I'm really curious. Are you, would you be comfortable telling me how you are? Because I am curious. And if you're comfortable, please share. So I think that how are you good? How are you good is ridiculous. When I ask how are you, I want to know an answer. So I, I know we're running short on time, but perhaps I, I do need to share this piece. Many years ago, I'm walking to get a cup of coffee and I pass by the gentleman who parks cars outside the restaurant. And I know him, I'm friendly with him. I say, hi, Jacques, how are you? And he smiles and shrugs and says, I can't complain. I go on for my coffee and I think about, I can't complain. That could mean two different things. I have nothing to complain about or I wouldn't let myself complain. Curiosity. I'm curious, which is it? On my way back, I go back and share my question with him anew. Jacques, does that mean everything's great? There's nothing to complain about? Or you wouldn't allow yourself to complain? Now, this new question made him very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, he shared that from the culture that he comes from, um, he was African, and from his country, he, the way he was raised is nobody should complain. So he said, no, it means it's not okay to complain. Mm. I said, okay, so whenever I see you, when I ask, how are you, could you make an exception? Because I care and I want to know, and that way we wouldn't just be strangers. That's what I mean about curiosity and breaking through transactional communication that means nothing. Yeah, yeah. So we've still got a little time here. So tell us a little bit more about like the curriculum. You probably have a structure for it. And, and uh, it's how many sessions? Seven sessions? It's, it's going to be four Tuesday evenings. Oh, four. Um, okay. Four. Um, I think it's about an hour and a half each evening. Mm -hmm. um, and the structure is going to be moving from the general to the specific. Halfway through, we'll be diving deeply into new communication skills and strategies. But my goal is to make the course very, very participatory. Um, it, nobody is compelled to share. They, if there's a question to be asked, you can ask it anonymously or you can come on camera and share it. And along with the course, I've, I'm providing eBooks, copies of my books, videos, in other words, it's, it's an entire envelope uh, around resources about how to prosper in your relationships. Again, design for partnerships and romantic relationships, but in no way limited to that. You can use these skills anywhere. And many of the people registering thus far aren't currently in a relationship. They want to learn so they can illuminate the road ahead and get the next relationship 
correct or get better results than they did previously. Um, the site to go to to read about your relationship is called zoomwithmelschwartz.com. Oh, and that's where you can read all about it and see the resources I'm providing as well. And again, it's archived, so if you miss not a problem, you can watch it whenever you choose to. Um, it will it will be the first time that I'm using this format to teach relationships. In the old days, I'd rent a room for a day or a weekend and the people would come in and we'd convene and we would do it that way. Um, but I miss that. In, <laughs> I, 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 I do too, you know. The, the experience, the visceral experience, the camaraderie. All my great. all my groups are online these days, and I'm just like, I'm going to uh, not my workshop, but a workshop in North Carolina. The first one that I've been, we'll we'll have about 200 of us, mostly therapists, and and we'll get to hug and and not wear masks. <laughs> I just am so excited. Now I wanted it's, it's, to, I, yes. I wanted to expand on another part because you know. We have been focused on romantic or marriages or that kind of relationship. I have a friend who I've had on several times, Karen O'Brien. And Karen O'Brien is from the University of Oslo. She's one of the leading climate scientists on the planet and um, uh, has been very active on a global global stage. And uh, uh, one of the, I, I can't remember the name of her latest book, uh, something like You Really Matter. And uh, she's talking about from a quantum, from a quantum, uh, you know, Alex Rent's work on quantum uh, uh, social change, that whole area. But she was talking about it, and, I, and I, I was really, I love this, having been an environmentalist my entire life. She says, you know, climate change, yes, it's a political issue to some degree, and yes, it's a technological issue, but really, climate change is a relationship issue. And looking at it from the quantum window that we've both experimented with in our work, um, I thought that was really powerful that when we look at these big issues out here, we have to realize that we actually matter, you know, the way she used that. We are matter and we matter. And that um, this kind of, you know, really attuning to all of our relationships. One of my teachers asked me one time, was that the most important conversation you ever had? And I said, no. He said, why not? What if every relationship conversation that we had was the most important conversation we ever had and we held it in that context? How would that affect our family, our relationships, our community, and uh, these bigger global issues? So I'd wonder, wonder your take on that. Well, I think what you're referring to, the way I language that, is being able to pay singular attention in the moment that you're in. Um, we all have insights. My experience though is on occasion I have an insight and I say, no, that's a defining moment. I value the insight and the experience so much that I'll say my life has changed now 
because of this moment, this communication, this relationship. As I just repeated the story about the attendant who parked cars, shocked, that communication impacted me profoundly. I hope it impacted him profoundly. Coming, coming back to um, your friend, um, in terms of you matter, of course, I, I look at um, climate and everything in terms of relationship. You know, the social scientist Gregory Bateson said, all things must be defined by relationship. So it is in our relationship with mind that we came to think it's okay to exploit resources, to turn the planet into a pile of junk. There's a greed, which is not financial greed, it's a greed of self-interest that has us disconnect and not become part of the whole. I would say that is at the root of climate disaster. Yeah. An unfulfilling, unfulfillable hunger. Yes. So exploit others, exploit the planet, consume. Um, now, indigenous cultures have always seen it differently. You know, they haven't operated the same way. As, we're, as we read in Native American tradition, they would think long and hard about how an action would impact seven generations forward. So there was, again, going back to Bateson, he called it an ecology of mind. Right. So that was the, of, that to, was the name of one of his books. Actually. Yes. So to <laughs> me, the ecological disaster out there, sadly, would have to be because we don't operate from an ecology of mind. We operate through the illusion of separation and out of separation that leaves us with little to do but to compete and try to win and leads to greed. But from the sense of oneness, from the sense of entanglement, where the visage is we are all as one, then harmony, compassion, empathy, kindred feelings and spirit could prevail but it's the world view that has to shift we have to come into an ecology of mind otherwise it's all fragmented it's sliced and diced and we create havoc and we try to fix the havoc out there without realizing it's our mind that created the havoc out there yeah you know the buddhists have a wonderful term interdependent co-arising that we mm -hmm in our relationships in the world that it's interdependent and it's co-arising in in mm -hmm. our relationship i yes. think that's a, a great term i do too I've, i'm not familiar with it but that is an excellent term yeah well uh last thought that you might have uh about um relationships and any any key things that we didn't talk about that you just want to talk in this last minute or so no there, there are limitless things. <laughs> I, Always. I, you, you, you know, what I would say is this. In relationship, whatever it is that we think to be true, isn't. All we can speak about is how I relate, how I feel, how I perceive. It's essential for relationship to thrive that we come out of the myth of objectivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's the heart of the matter. That is the heart of the matter, isn't it? Yes. 
Mel Schwartz, say one more time about uh, your course and uh, the date and the how to contact course, It's called Cultivating Intimate and Resilient Relationships. Zoom with MelSchwartz.com brings you to the page or you can go to my website, MelSchwartz.com. I can be reached at Mel at MelSchwartz.com. Hmm. Mel, great to see you. Great to spend time with you. And... Uh, Thanks for checking in. It's uh, we'll have to make it a little sooner than I think it's been four or five years since the last time. We I, 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 I think so. We'll have to make it much sooner, Michael. <laughs> All right, my friend, you be well. And I know you got Me another too. appointment, so uh, we shall talk again sometime soon. Thank you. Blessings. <laughs> Same to you, Michael. Thanks so much. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.